Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Get Into It with Gila. In today's episode, I interview Rachel Buxbaum on the topic of trauma and body relationships, which, um, as you'll hear in the episode, is a really interesting interconnection of of two things and um, many things, actually, that intersect. So as a dietitian who specializes in eating disorders, disordered eating, I definitely see uh, the relationship between trauma and body. And then coming from Rachel's perspective, who is a PhD candidate and she's becoming a therapist, she she sees that as well. So that, that's a really interesting dynamic. Um, I don't want to give away too much of the episode here in the intro, uh, but I will just say that I am recording this intro on Wednesday, January 5th, and I just wanted to say refuel shalima to anyone who is sick with COVID or the flu. I know that we have had um, a few kids home this week from school and it's been really, really hard. And on the one hand, I'm trying to tell myself, like, it's really not the end of the world. Like, thank God everybody's going to get better. And at the same time, it's really hard that everybody isn't feeling well and we're dealing with cranky kids and cranky parents and um, that everybody's schedule is off and it's, it's really, really hard. And at the same time, it's funny um, that um, I go to Ashir on Tuesday mornings with Robinson Weinberger here at Ish Kodesh. And every year she picks like a different Mida. She'll even cover a Mida for like two years, which is like a, a positive character trait. And the Mida that we're focusing on now is Simcha, and which is happiness. And we are um, talking a lot about Simcha, which is happiness, and then also sadness, like comparing and contrasting the two. And it's been giving me like a lot of uh, perspective. And the funny thing is, is that it's not like anything she's saying are things that I haven't necessarily heard, but it reminds me of the whole concept of like Masila Yasharim, that um, like what what he says in the beginning is that like, it's not like you have to always learn new concepts. It's that you have to like review what you already know. And I really find that to be, I guess, helpful for this specific time period where we're all like, on the one hand, I feel so grateful that I have kids and that they really are healthy, Baruch Hashem, and that we're all healthy and that these illnesses are temporary and they'll go away. But on the other hand, making space for like the frustration that it's it's hard to be off schedule. So I'm just trying to hold space for myself and for you, as well as the everybody, the the almost like the the global trauma in the in the in the Jewish world going through the Chaim Walder incident and I don't I don't have anything really to add to the conversation as I as I posted about on my Instagram just that my heart goes out to the survivors and the victims of abuse any type of abuse and um it's it's really been challenging for I think all of us to wrap our head, heads around how something so terrible could happen and and somebody could do something so terrible and then it just it just seems so impossibly tr- impossible that this could happen, but it it can happen and it did happen, and I think that it's important to talk about. Also, not that I'm have so much to add, but I did post some resources on my Instagram. Um, I listened to Rabbi to Yaakov Horowitz and Dr. David Pelkowitz and um, Joma put out a live, and I think it's important that we're all assessing and reassessing what we tell our kids and what we don't tell our kids, and. Um, I'm I'm definitely doing that myself, but again, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pretend that I'm an expert or that I have so much to add professionally on this conversation. But I just again am making space for the conversation. Um, so I think that without further ado, here is the episode. And please feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions, comments, concerns. You could email me at gilaglassberg18 at gmail.com. If you like this episode or any of the other episodes, I'm pretty sure this is episode 81 or 82. <laughs> Um, feel free to write a review, leave a five-star rating on the Apple, on the Apple app, because that really helps us move up in the, in the rankings and other people could get this information. If you have any special requests for a certain type of podcast, I would love to hear. And if you're looking to make peace with food and learn the principles of intuitive eating, go to my website, www.gilaglassberg.com. You can get a lot of free resources there, blog posts, YouTube videos, and you could also sign up for a free 20 minute consultation via the link in that website. Okay. Have a great day. Hi, everyone, and welcome to my podcast, Get Into It with Gila. I know you're going to love the content here because you will gain inspiration, powerful tools and insights, and valuable knowledge. If you want more of this, please visit my website at www.gilaglassberg.com or visit me on Instagram at gilaglassberg.com. 
I'm Gila Glassberg, a registered dietitian and intuitive eating counselor. I have come to realize by counseling many, many women that this work is much deeper and greater than food and body image. It's the bigger picture challenges we face of love, belonging, acceptance, what our true values and goals are, noticing them, addressing them, and gaining skills to move forward. If you have been struggling with what your life's purpose is, or you just feel stuck in general and don't know what's holding you back, this podcast will enlighten and inspire you to take action and move forward. This podcast is about other women in the 21st century who feel that losing weight will fix all their problems or somehow meet their unmet needs. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Get Into It with Gila. I'm Gila Glassberg, registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor. And today I have Rachel Buxbaum. Did I say that right? Yes. yes. Okay. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Sure. So could you tell the listeners, um, really, what do you do? Where do you live and what do you do? I am originally from Detroit. I'm living oh. in Brooklyn now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm in my fourth year of the doctoral program at LIU Brooklyn for clinical psychology. So you're becoming and a psychologist. I am. Yes. Okay. Got it. Very cool. Thank you. Um, mainly what I do is therapy. That's why I spend most of my time on these days. I'm working at New York Presbyterian hospital in Manhattan. It's called Gracie square. And I also work. I also have a few clients at the LIU Brooklyn psychological services center, which serves students at LIU Brooklyn. So, um, a lot of the people I've worked with are young adults. A lot of the people that I've worked with are women. Um, I also teach at the College of Mount St. Vincent. I teach counseling skills and statistics. Wow. So people's favorite class and their least favorite class. Oh my, um, yes. I, t- yeah. I think I took a similar class to that when I was in my master's, yeah. That's, that's, thank God those are two different classes. Oh, okay. It sounds like two different classes. <laughs> It'd be a very polarizing class. Right, right. The counseling is like so fun. And then the statistics is not fun at all, but yeah. Yeah. I, I tried to inject some fun into it. But it definitely does feel like, like, you know, waving a lollipop in front of a kid to try to get them to go to the doctor, you know, like, right, right. come on guys, yeah, math yeah. is fun. Right. Do you love uh, math? I, I do. I don't like math, but I do like statistics mm-hmm. because they're helpful. They do stuff for you, right? Like they tell it's you. It's true. Things. It's true. But the class that I took in my master's, it, although the professor pr- did try to make it like light, it's very mm-hmm. dry. Like the, the. Yeah. I don't exactly remember what the class, I think it was, yeah, statistics and research, right? So like statistics are interesting when you learn about statistics and things that are like correlated, you know, but the actual study of statistics is a little dry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard. I do try the spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down approach, uh, but it's really hard. Like, to do you bring of... candy to class? <laughs> no, I have actually, I've actually only taught the class online at this oh, point. I'm, I'm a okay. COVID teacher. Um, oh, yeah, I'm, I, I feel like it would be a little better in person. I would definitely bring sweets, but it's really hard to mask the taste of like, you know, standardized deviations. Yes. Yeah. I, I try my best, but to a certain degree, the math is always going to shine through. Right. Right. Okay. I'm just happy that I'm not in college anymore. <laughs> right. It's like one of those classes like you have to take, like no matter what I took it in my undergrad and in my graduate program yeah that was fun yeah um when you reached out to me it was a few months ago and you were telling me that you you work um with young adults in LIU right LIU Brooklyn yeah and you're like the guidance counselor or you're like the psychologist in like are you sort of you act as a psychologist psychologist there for like the students we act as therapists we um, are licensed, we are supervised by licensed psychologists. But yeah, I've worked there for going on almost three years now. Is that like common practice, like for um, psychologists and training to work on college campuses? Because like, maybe they're like more forgiving as college students, but I don't know. Yeah, I, I, that is pretty common practice to work at a college counseling center while you're training. Uh, I do think they're more forgiving. I also get the sense sometimes that college students might actually appreciate some of the, I don't know, maybe I'm fooling myself here, but I do get the sense that sometimes college students appreciate that we're not fully professionals ourselves, that we're kind of in development alongside them. There's an appreciation of authenticity 
Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're training, you kind of have to be authentic because you don't right. have a set of rules to rely on yet. Right. That makes a lot of sense. No, I always say that like dietitians in private practice, we don't have to get, unfortunately, we don't have to get, um, we need supervised practice. Like we need 1200 hours of supervised, supervised practice, but not, I didn't have any, um, supervised practice as, um, as a counselor, as a private practice dietitian, which is really different than mm. a dietitian in a nursing home, which is what I was really mostly trained in. I mean, I did, you do a lot of rotations when you're in your internship, but I was there for the longest in my clinical rotation. And it's not like you're sitting with a, a patient for an hour, you know, you're mm. in and out of their room and getting their food preferences and not really doing so much counseling. A little bit, but not really a lot. So like I now dietitians in private practice, like what a lot of us do is pay a private supervisor because like it's kind of hard to learn like what you're doing right and wrong without somebody watching you. It just is. So I appreciate that about the field of psychology. I think that's really important. Um, That's really interesting. There is, I think there's a lot of similarities. Yeah, um, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Very curious what your journey has been like with that. (laughs) <laughs> well, I'll tell, I'll tell <laughs> you in a second, episode, but, first, yeah. <laughs> but first I want to hear, no, I'm happy to share my journey, but what, so what led you to wanting to become a psychologist? I originally wanted to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a lot of ideas about upholding justice and, you know, helping the underdog. And, and then I worked in the law field. I, in undergrad, I, I worked part-time at a couple of different firms. And I saw that the legal field was very different from how I'd imagined it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, and yeah. I don't mean to demonize an entire field. There certainly are altruists, but for the most part, it was very money focused. It was very focused on trying to make the client's narrative happen as well as, po- as much as possible. And especially in fields like forensic psychology, which is psychology used for the purposes of a legal case. So immigration cases, let's say criminal cases where a psychologist would be brought in to assess a particular client, um, see if they're fit to stand trial, see if they meet criteria for PTSD, if they're filing for asylum or a refugee mm-hmm. status, let's say. There was so much money thinking, it really, really turned me off. And while getting disillusioned with the legal field, I was taking incredible psychology classes. Um, I went to Wayne State University in Detroit and they have a great psychology department. And I just thought, you know, this might be a field that I actually can do the sorts of defending of the vulnerable that I had always wanted, albeit in a different way, in a way that kind of supports them as individuals rather than kind of swoops in and takes them out of difficult circumstances. And that wish to kind of have like this powerful ability to just kind of swoop in and save the underdog rather than sit with them in their troubles is always something I'm struggling with, but it's also one of the most fulfilling parts of this work. Right. Wow. That's really interesting because you would think, I mean, maybe like on surface, like surface level, like you would think like, what does a lawyer have to do with a psychologist? But then when you say like, um, thank you for explaining forensic psychology, because I didn't know what that meant. Um, that makes a lot of sense, right? Because you were not drawn to like the legal aspect of being a lawyer, which I've heard from a lot of people because there's like, you know, so much money involved and so much like, how do you, you want to defend your client, but also like, what is the truth? Like you also want to be like truthful, right? Right. And then, and then when you said, the last thing that you said about like, sometimes as a psychologist, not that I am a psychologist, but because of like the work that I do as a dietitian, like I can't always or often ever make a change for the client but I could like hold space for them mm-hmm. and me like for myself like for somebody who's been to therapy like sometimes in your head you're just like okay my therapist will know the answer you know and they're just like not giving you any answers but they're like mm-hmm. you could cry for 10 minutes straight and then you just are sitting there like that's it's crazy because like I, I've had supervisors tell me like the, one of the probably the most important thing you could do is become a empathetic, empathetic, um, compassionate listening ear. And I'm like, that can't be the most important thing I do as a dietitian. Like that just can't be like, I have to have better clinical skills and more nutrition knowledge. And she's like, no, really, that's probably the most important thing you could do. And now like doing it for a few years, it's like so interesting how like we have such a discomfort sitting with people's Mm. pain. So Mm -hmm. like if you're the only person in your life that can do that is your therapist or, or your dietitian, it's like, 
really an, an invaluable person in your life, really. Yeah. I, I think about this all the time in terms of, you know, child selves and adult selves. And I, I do believe that we carry around all of our child selves, you know, our five-year-old self, our eight-year-old self, our 11-year-old self. Um, and the child self wants someone to just kind of take care of you, make the thing that's hurting you go away. Um, but the adults, the adult self needs to be respected and needs right. to be trusted to make their own decisions and has opinions that might get suffocated by somebody just kind of swooping in and making things go away. Um, so there's that real balance of how to kind of acknowledge the child self's needs without disrespecting the adult self's capacity. Right. And I, I from the therapist side, I, I think I can speak for a few therapists when we say there's a big part of us that which wishes we could just kind of like snap our fingers and make it all good. But right. For sure. Fortunately, that's typically not the case. Right. I, I will say like from my perspective, like um, so, so I'm a dietitian and I, I'm trained in this approach called intuitive eating. Right. So like mm-hmm. a lot of times, um, I feel like I'm getting really far with the client. Like they're really making peace with food and like accepting their body. Right. And then <clears throat> this has gotten a lot easier for me because of my supervision, but then they come into a session, you know, crying because they saw a picture of themselves mm. or they, um, were around a lot of diet talk. And like my old, my, like when I was newly doing this, I was like, shoot, like I'm doing this all, I am doing this all Mm -hmm. wrong. Like here they are like still in like so much pain about their body. Right. Mm -hmm. And now it's like, like I could take, I know I learned how to take that deep breath and be like, yeah, that's really painful. Even though like, even though like they're, we're working on the belief system that like, it's, it's not so important the way that you look and obviously have to take care of your body, but like seeing a picture of yourself where you don't feel good about it shouldn't ruin your day. It shouldn't have Mm -hmm. to ruin your day. Not that it shouldn't ruin your day. It shouldn't have to ruin your day. And I could, you know, relate to the client and be like, yeah, I also saw a picture of myself this weekend and I, it really did ruin my day because that's the reality that we live in, you know? Mm -hmm. And like so much of what, what I, what I do or what I thought I would be doing is like helping them not feel that way. But so much of what I really do actually do is like sit with them in that pain, which is really hard because you really do want to help, but that Mm. is helpful. Yeah. I I love that. That that is so similar to therapy and that feeling of that feeling of somebody coming in with a, with a really big conflict, especially with a conflict between something that we um, engendered in them uh, and something that they encounter in their real life. It brings up not only pain for them, but also kind of like shame and inadequacy for us. Yeah. It's like, why isn't what I'm giving them good enough to fix them or, you know, cure them. Right. Um, and being able to say that nothing that we say is going to be a magical solution to everything that they encounter. And that there's a certain amount of helplessness in being in the helper role is really, really tough. And I, I struggled too a lot with that. And my supervision is also very helpful. Right. With those pieces. Yeah. Right. That's probably, I think, I think like that, like therapy is becoming like very big in the, in the Orthodox world and people are mm-hmm. right. Like they're they're It's becoming more normal to go to therapy. And like, there's so many from therapists now, but like, it's, I don't think anyone like really wants to be doing, having those hard conversations. Like when you think about a therapist, like it's not easy to sit in someone else's pain. Like I was, where was I just recently? I have to remember. I think somebody was crying or something like, mm-hmm. you know, in, in front of me. And I, and I was just sitting there like letting them cry. I don't remember exactly where this was, but I remember them telling me like how, like, you know, like I'm such a good listener and how it helped them so much. And I was thinking like five years ago, I would never would have been able to do that. It's just like so painfully uncomfortable to be in someone else's pain or, or like with a kid and a lolly, like here, just have the lolly, like stop crying. And like to learn the skill or learn the, like the ability to carry someone else's pain, like, it's just so helpful. Like, I wish, I I think that that's what Mm. I think what we're all trying to do as like some people who are therapists or what I'm trying to do in my own field is like, it's okay to be uncomfortable. It's okay to cry. It's okay to feel uncomfortable. And like, I think that there's been such a shift in the, in the world that like uncomfortable feelings are okay. And like, we could all learn to sit with them. That would be like such an important life skill, you know? Absolutely. And that a lot of our problems come not from what our minds have in them 
but the disgust and the fear that we have towards those things in our mind, that's, it, it isn't the uncomfortable feeling that really causes the problem. It's the fact that we tell ourselves that we're not allowed to have those uncomfortable feelings. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, so anyways, I wanted to, we were, our topic for today was trauma and the body relationship. Like that's what we were really like talking about, uh, six months ago. Um, but so maybe you could tell the listeners about like your, um, what you see in your clinical practice, like for girls who are like college age, right. Women who are college Mm -hmm. age. So what do you see? What, um, typical themes do you see? Or like, what do you see over and over again in your clinical practice with this specific demographic? Working with a lot of young adults and young adult women, though not exclusively with just those people, inevitably questions about how are you sleeping? How are you eating come up and typically become pretty important. And I've noticed there are these really strong links between trauma, their relationships with themselves, their relationships with other people, and their relationships to food and their bodies. And a lot of, you know, I I don't know very much about intuitive eating, but I've, except for what I've listened from your podcast, but I suspect that you probably see a lot of sort of variations of trauma in in your own work because Mm -hmm. of these, because Mm -hmm. of these dynamics. One of the legacies of trauma is this enduring sense that the world isn't safe, right? One of the criterion of PTSD is uh, a feeling of separateness from other people. And there's also a separation from the self, right? Mm -hmm. And the self-experience. And we typically call that dissociation, but it's something that the person developed because they needed to, right? They needed to separate from whatever they were experiencing to survive their environment. Um, They might've needed to block out whatever their body was saying to protect themselves during abuse, or they might've had to make sense of experiences of neglect by convincing themselves that they didn't need very much Mm -hmm. um, or they shouldn't need very much. Mm -hmm. And when people are raised in this deprivation, whether, you know, physical or emotional, it's very common for people to come to see their needs as this demanding, powerful, out of control force and see themselves as having this, like this bottomless pit of need. Um, I had one patient um, who had a history of emotional and physical neglect who was explaining to me why it felt so dangerous to listen to her feelings. And she described her feelings as greedy and unreasonable. Mm-hmm. And I just loved that. It's just such a beautiful um, way to capture that out of controlness, that, that, ins- that sense that her history left her with of having this insatiable hunger um, for care, for safety, to be seen that she just never had. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really does often reflect in, in people's relationship with food. Right. Right. I mean, the way that, yeah, totally. That's such a good explanation. I think that people are sometimes surprised when they hear, like I interviewed somebody who was sexually abused and that's when really her eating disorder just started. And a lot of people reached out to me saying like, I can't believe that, um, like they were so taken aback that that's like some of the work that I do, not all the work that I do, but it does come up. And I was like, yes, the work that I do is extremely heavy. And there's a lot of trauma related to, uh, to people's food relationships. And I don't know, it's hard for me to say like, um, like, let's say I think about this a lot, like let's say a hundred or 200 years ago when food wasn't so readily available, did people struggle with their relationship to food? I don't think mm-hmm. so the way that we do now. I remember learning in school that um, when I was in my master's at Lehman, like this was probably like five or six years ago that, um, you know, people who, who don't have a lot of like resources or food in third world countries, like don't struggle with anorexia. Mm. Um, so that's an interesting thing that, that also kind of reminds me of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs that like, you know, like as, as we go through the, the, our priorities of needs, like other things come into play. Like we, if all of our, like, you know, shelter is taken care of and our food is taken care of and our clothes are taken care of, then we start to really feel like, okay, well, what am I contributing to the world? And then food and, and either, um, binging or restricting or, Mm -hmm. or, you know, um, like 
um, purging and, and like, like having, you know, struggling with bulimia, mm-hmm. like at a loss for words now. Um, I'm those contagious. Are all, <laughs> those are all coping mechanisms to deal with. Like, let's say the emptiness you feel in your life, you're not being able to self-actualize. So that's really, that's what I find to be really interesting. But mm-hmm. let's say when you said about like trauma related to food, right? So there are people who let's say were, God forbid, sexually abused as a child. And like you were using the word like disassociate, they felt so uncomfortable in their body that they were either starving themselves to take away any sort of feeling in their mm-hmm. body, or they were, you know, binging, which also leads to that place where you just feel either so much guilt about the binge that you can't feel the guilt about your body or you really can't feel in your body yeah it's really interesting it's really very fascinating that's why you can't really separate the Mm -hmm. emotional component or the therapeutic component from the nutritional component of an eating disorder you really can't they're just so interrelated but then there's like trauma which I which I consider trauma for for I always go back to um, my client's childhood, I always like my first question is always like, what's your earliest childhood memory around food? Mm. Let's say this isn't all the clients. There's so many, I see so many different things, but let's say, um, they were in a larger body as a child or their parents thought they were in a larger body or they were deemed as like the overweight kid and their siblings weren't, and they Mm. were fed, you know, an apple for dessert and their siblings were fed, um, cake for dessert. And now, you know, at, at surface level, like, is, was that a trauma? But the the thing that usually happens is that that child will either sneak food, steal money for food. Um, just there's so much, even if they don't do that, there's so much guilt and shame that comes around that child's body, the body that they live in. So mm-hmm. you can't really, obviously I don't see, those are not all my cases, but it's re- you can't really separate like the food relationship and, and trauma. I mean, in some cases you can, but you see I, it. The I overlap. totally agree with you. Yeah. The the relationship that we develop with ourselves or that we have been taught to develop with ourselves is so readily visible in, in the way that we treat our hunger and the way we treat our, our body. As, as you're talking about this, this person, this client who was given an apple, I have a client who has a history of, of trauma, what we call capital T trauma, like something mm-hmm. that would meet criteria for PTSD, as well as a lot of the, the little T trauma, the sorts of things that you're talking about, these messages that, that her body is too big and um, she takes up too much, too much space. And I, I remember she started off a session once. Uh, she, she came in late. It was an online session. She came late to the, to the Zoom and she was like, I'm so sorry, Rachel. I just had to clean off my, my table because I had this pile of almond shells and you would be disgusted by it. Mm-hmm. you know and later we kind of came back to discussing her her needs mm-hmm. and how much she feels like she's allowed to need mm-hmm. and I said you know this kind of reminds me of these almond shells that you were so ashamed of and the way you made it sound was as if there's this like Mount Everest of almond shells that I would just be horrified by and I have a really hard time imagining that I would have this repulsed response that you imagine that you imagine I would have it seems it seems to me like maybe you're just quite unfamiliar with the depth and the frequency of the needs of the average human Mm -hmm. and that happens a lot with with trauma and and neglect there's this real hostility and repulsion toward toward the signals of their body and the signals of their mind that says that they want something because mm-hmm. that's that hasn't been safe for them that hasn't been a needing or wanting something hasn't been a safe thing to feel so they they push it away of course that makes them worse at meeting their needs right and then our ignored needs become more pressing and mm-hmm. then they become more alarming to the person and right. the cycle repeats right right that, that, that makes me think of a lot of different things that, mm-hmm. that I also tr- sort of try to teach clients, but let's say like something that comes up a lot in with my clients and, and I try to teach it, even if it doesn't come up is like the concept of self-care, which is like, so over talked about in the media or mm-hmm. like, or like whatever. I don't know if it's, I don't want to say it's over talked about because I, I still think it's so important, but like, you know, it becomes one of those like 
trending hot topics that people are sick of hearing. But let's say like, um, I, I, I find this a lot and I find that it's a really helpful tool. Like if we, if we could look at a binge or we could look at a restrictive period as like a learning, a learning tool, right? Like we could go over like, what were you vulnerable to? Like, did you not, did you not eat enough that day? Did you not sleep enough that day? But what about the other stuff? Like, did somebody really bother you? Was there a boundary that you had to put into place? And then there's like Mm -hmm. that very important component of like, how's your self-care doing? So let's say like taking away like how you're sleeping and if you eat enough and um, have you like moved your body? Like, do you have like good relationships with your friends? Like if you're, I talk about the five love languages a lot. If you're like a quality time person, which I am, like, have you had a good um, quality time type of thing with yourself with somebody else what about words like do you need more words of affirmation and like if we could turn that experience into like a learning experience we could really glean what that client what that person needs right Mm -hmm. so like that's that's like really hard to do with somebody who's struggling with their basic needs in general like having needs but I, I find that like um just using the sessions either with me or with our therapist to say like for the therapist or, or for, for, for myself to explain, like, it's okay to have needs. Like it's, it's actually like really beautiful and powerful to express, like, these are my desires. And I actually, some people don't like this book, The Surrendered Wife. I don't know if you've ever read it or how you feel about it, but Laura Doyle, the author, she talks about this concept in the, in the book. It's a, it's a marriage book about how, like, we don't always, um, we're always like, a lot of us are ashamed to say like, I would love a diamond ring, right? Like that's mm-hmm. like so like spoiled or I would love to go on a vacation, right? I would love to uh, get away for a night. I would love to do my kitchen, right? So like mm-hmm. sometimes you don't get what you want and maybe some people are so afraid to state their needs because they are scared of sounding spoiled or scared that they won't get their need met. But there's something really beautiful about just stating a desire, not um demanding it from somebody else or from yourself right just mm-hmm. stating it and I think that that's very much like what people who have been told that you don't like even deserve to like eat right mm-hmm. you don't even deserve a bed you don't even deserve to be angry like that's like that's like a billion steps ahead but I'm just saying I think that that spoke to me a lot because like I think I hear this all the time from women saying like I know I was so like I feel so guilty like I had I got extra cleaning help for mm-hmm. for the and I'm like trying to help them celebrate that. Like, wow, like you anticipated, like this was going to be really hard for you. You hired somebody, spent the money, spent the time. And like, let's celebrate that as a victory. Like that for many people is a very foreign concept. Absolutely. And a very complicated concept too. There's, I, I ask this in various ways all the time uh, with my patients. Um, what, what's the fear if you want something? right? What's the feared outcome? Maybe it's disappointment. Maybe it's exploitation. Um, very, very often wanting something or having, having signals of need. I, I, I love the way you said it. Like, it's very difficult to even say, I would love to have a diamond ring, right? right. Even without any expectation that someone's going to go get it for us. Right. It's hard to just sit in the fact that something would be preferable. Right. Something is wanted. Um, Right. I'm smiling just because I'm just sorry to interrupt. I'm just smiling because that was a hard, really hard thing for me. Like maybe when I read the book five years ago and now I just feel so okay with saying something that I know sounds like a little crazy. And I, and I also will say like on the topic of marriage, we make space for like crazy things. Our husbands say, like, Mm. I would love to start a business. And you're like the, the, the person who's like so anxious and so in scarcity mindset is like, but what will we do? And, all, and then all of a sudden you're like, all right, my kids are going to have to take them out of yeshiva. And it's like, oh, just making space. Like, yeah, that does sound really cool. Like, right. imagine if somebody <laughs> would say that about our desires. They're not trying to get it for us. They're not trying to do anything about it. They're just making space for like, it's like the same thing we were talking about before, making space for yes. somebody's feelings. Making space for playing, right? So much of um, object relational psychoanalysis, which is a, a really, really rich and cool part of of psychological theory talks about the importance of being able to play with ideas that we don't have to see them as dangerous or something that's better off avoided nor do we have to enact them or feel like they have to be enacted for us to kind of hold them in our mind and go like and wonder what it might be like uh or wonder about what's interesting to us 
about this idea. Um, being able to play is super helpful because it means that we don't have to fall into things. We don't have to live our lives in these sort of rigid, either we are something and we are it a hundred percent, or we can't have contact with that part of ourselves or that part of experience at all. Right. For sure. I love that. Like, yeah, just the, the concept of being able to like play, letting things like, that's why I really like self-care, like the topic of Mm -hmm. self-care, because I think that like, like if you, if you know me personally, which you don't, but whoever does know me personally knows like the people are always like, you're so good at self-care. Like I try to go out with friends and Mm -hmm. I try to like go to the gym and I try to like, there's a concert I really want to go to. Like I, I try to be like, I'm still very, like try to be very responsible with my money, but I'm always like, life could be fun. And this is yeah. not the Gila five years ago, but like, I tell that to people all the time. They're like, wow, you're so good at both. I'm like, well, I, I really like having fun. Like I like doing paint nights and I like going out with friends and like the old Gila, but oh, we can't afford it. Like, so of course you can't afford it. Cause that's how you feel about your life, you know? And like, yeah. I know not everybody's so into that. Like maybe they think that's more like outside of the realm of the like therapeutic belief system that like, I'm, I'm not talking about manifesting or anything like that. I'm just talking about like being able to like welcome what the world has to offer you. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm as you're talking, I'm thinking about um, sort of what you've learned in, in lived experience. Uh, the reflection in psychoanalytic theory that's coming to mind is um, what's called the, the schizoid dilemma, which is a big, like scary word. We're very sensitive to anything with the prefix schizo, but it just means something split off, right? Uh Something separated um, that we're frightened of, or we're separate. In this case, it means we're separated from a part of ourselves, often related to to trauma. Um, And the schizoid dilemma describes this trap where we feel like we either have to shut down what we want or our urges and our needfulness really, or we have to get lost in it. Um, Mm -hmm. It's this sense that our options are, you know, retreat into ourself, uh, shut down emotionally, shut down that desire. You know, you want to go out and have fun too bad, you know, Um, where you're safe, right? There's a safety to it. There's a real sense of control. Um, But it's also incredibly lonely and isolating that hyper-controlled, um, that we aren't, we aren't putting ourselves out there. We, we don't have to be in touch with what we want. Right. Or if, if we're not shut down, then it feels like our other option is to try to connect, but do so in a way that feels completely out of control, right? Do so in a way where, where relationally, let's say the other person has all the power that we'll have to do whatever the other person wants if we want to maintain contact, um, in which case we get to connect but in a way that is like terrifying and suffocating and also unsustainable. Mm-hmm. So it makes it necessary to retreat again, right? And this, the schizoid dilemma specifically describes our relationships with others, um, our split off needs for, for relatedness. But I think there's an argument here to be made that we can develop that same schizoid dilemma in our relationships with our bodies, right? We can see the options as either shut down all contact with what it says, what it wants, uh, so to try to control our hunger or avoid it altogether somehow, um, yeah. or make contact with what we need, but in a way that gives up all control that kind of lets us be engulfed or overtaken. And maybe in the former state where we're purging or restricting in the latter state, maybe we're binging, but right. in either state, we don't feel good and we're not honoring our, our hunger. Right. That is what came to mind when you were talking about that in, in terms of the relationship to self, like, which is just so common, like which I, what I see is like that need to control and restrict does come from, a, uh, and in many times comes from a place of like, I shouldn't have needs, right? And the, so mm-hmm. that could be like, their needs are ignored, um, nothing to do with their food, but but they're able to manifest that with their food versus um like you can't control me. I'm going to eat whatever I want as much as mm-hmm. I want, even if I feel completely sick and really out of control. Right. So like that would be, and, and the interesting thing that I always, I, I probably have said this on the podcast before is that like people who struggle with anorexia, bulimia or binge eating disorder, the eating disorder really is helping them in a lot of ways. So like any maladaptive behavior that you, that you see with your clients, we, we always want to like try to help the client see like 
how how that came to be and and how that has helped them and like what what could they do that that really is helping them now that's helping them more mm-hmm. so I actually wanted to ask you like what other what are the like you 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 mentioned that you noticed this um relationship with food and relationship to trauma or or your or your clients bodies or body trauma or things like that how do you help them or how have you helped them or or what's been helpful for them mm-hmm I think a lot of our work focuses on, first of all, exploring, um, really homing in on what that fear or lack of familiarity with our needs brings up, what it looks like for them, how they're trying to manage it. There's this, there's a great book called Disorders of the Self by Ralph Klein um, and James Masterson. And he refers to this way that we try to manage uh, the intense polarities of the relationships we have with our needs. He calls it the schizoid compromise, right? Like what are the ways that we're trying to maintain some kind of contact with our needs? So our hunger, let's say physical or emotional, right? While trying to stay distant enough from it to avoid that fear of being engulfed. And how are those strategies working for us? Like, is it, is it working? So patients will maintain contact with their bodies on this kind of bargaining level, right? Like I'm going to give you a slice of cake or more realistically, I'm thinking of um, my patients with bulimia. I'm going to give you two cakes, Mm -hmm. right? And then you're going to make me feel X, right? Right. So it's this very transactional relationship. It's almost a dominating relationship that they have with their body, but that's the way that they kind of, the compromise that they kind of come to so that they aren't completely alienated. They're not completely withdrawn. They're able to have some kind of relationship, but it's a very surface level um, controlling relationship in, in either direction. Either they feel controlled or they end up just completely steamrolling what their body wants um, and figuring out what they're doing, how it's working, and really, really normalizing the depth and the frequency of what people need in recognition that if, if we have a history of abuse or neglect or even the, the lowercase t traumas that you were talking about, it's very likely that our sense of what is normal to need emotionally and physically could use recalibrating. Right, right. Which I will say that my own therapist has helped me like learn like, no, Gila, this is a normal thing, like mm. whatever. So like, oh, really? Like, and then her having to say that over and over again, and then me being able to say it to myself that that's very clear to me now. Like it wasn't so clear to me a few years ago, you know, but that is very clear to me now. And, and I think that if I have to, if I have to say this, like I'm 31, but I've been doing like therapy for a long time and also lots of other self-help type of things. And like, I, th- I think I just couldn't get it when I was younger. Like I couldn't believe that that's a normal need or I couldn't believe mm. that that's the discrepancy between like what I had or what I needed was like, was like valid, let's say, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So, and everyone's everyone's life is so different and everyone needs so many different things and, and can be healed in so many different ways that I wouldn't have believed that five years ago. I don't know if that's helpful to anyone to know, but like, you go through life and you get other, you know, tools and you meet people who speak to you and and then people who don't speak to you. And like, that could all be okay. And I think that that's what we're like touching on a little bit with like Mm -hmm. the, the, I don't want to say it wrong, but like this, this dilemma. Yeah. Where there's like a lot of black and white thinking and like therapy helps with the gray, like, right. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. Or even dietitians, like we help people see like, you don't have to eat this way and you don't have to eat that way. And there's like lots of other ways to eat and feel about food. Mm-hmm. It's, I, <laughs> I love what you said that I, you, you were kind of doubting it, but I can, I can kind of bring along some more certainty that the fact that you have been there, that you've, you are coming from this place of seeing your hunger and your needs as insatiable and greedy and unreasonable. Right. And through the process of not demonizing your needs, but rather feeling them and going, oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that my needs, that my needs included that. That's sort of having that curiosity and openness to your needs without feeling like you have to either, you know, shut them down or enact them. Mm -hmm. 
and coming to a place where your knees no longer feel overwhelming and insatiable. You coming from a place where you see the bottomless pit of needs is not bottomless. Right. You will not just keep going and going and going forever. Right. Is such a relief, can be such a relief for people who are still in that stage where they feel like I can't get in contact with myself because if I do, I'll, I'll never come out. Right. And you mentioned the book, um, Disorders of the Self. So I was thinking uh, this, what came to mind for me, like with my clients is like, I always ask, let's say the topic of self-care. I always ask like, so is that serving you? Like, let's say mm. a mom will say, um, I really want to eat dinner at 4.35-ish because that's when I notice like I'm really hungry and the food is hot. And because I'm actually relating to this because I, I actually like eating dinner at like 4.35 with my kids because like, you know, the food's hot and fresh and they're uh-huh. eating and, um, and they're like, but I can't I have to feed my, let's say I work with people with, who have lots of kids. I have to feed my six kids first. Right. Mm-hmm. But what, so, okay. So what happens? Um, I scream at the kids the whole time during dinner. Cause I'm starving. I eat everything off their plate. I feel disgusting by the time it's my turn. Right. And I'm like, Oh, mm-hmm. so how's that? How is that serving you? Oh, but I can't eat before my kids. That's so selfish. I- okay. Well, how is that serving you? Like, well, could, could you be open to trying eating 10 minutes before they come home, even if that doesn't seem like a normal time to eat dinner? You know what mm. I mean? So that's like very explorative and trial and error, which I like to always tell my clients, like we're, we are going to try things that I don't know what's going to work, right? I don't, it's impossible for me to know, but yeah. are you willing to try? And, and asking yourself, is that serving you? You know, I, that's, that's great. That is a great example. And I, I, that example of we get so locked into this idea of it, it, I cannot eat before my kids do, you know, I, I, that would be unacceptable. That would be evil, whatever it is, whatever associations we have to those things, they lock us in and they keep us from, from exploring. They keep us from asking us, asking ourselves, is this actually doing what I expected to do? Is this actually, is the association between being, having a good life and eating after my kids is that holding water for me? Right. You know, we need to work on listening to ourselves and our experiences and noticing what happens and registering what our body has to say, what our experiences have to say without judgment or pressure to figure out, you know, what it means or even necessarily whether we're going to do anything about it because we, we could be surprised. Right, right. right. Yeah, that's definitely like um, a theme in my practice with clients. Like, let's say, like I always, t- I always explain this to clients that eating disorders don't exist in a vacuum. So like mm-hmm. most people who do struggle with the eating disorder struggle with other things like anxiety, depression, OCD, bipolar, and that's really common. Um, but let's, so let's say like I'm dealing with like somebody who has like a lot of anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. So I-, I learned this, that like, it doesn't, it's, it's not always helpful, but for some people it is very helpful that the voice of like anxiety and the healthy voice are two really different voices. Like the voice of anxiety is like really fast and screaming at you and yelling at you and making you feel terrible versus the healthier voice. That's like exploratory. Mm -hmm. I wonder what would happen, but when we're so stuck in anxiety as as somebody who I really could relate to that as somebody who has struggled with, with intense, like anxiety around certain things, and the thoughts are so intrusive, like learning to um, wonder what if, letting yourself wonder what if, like we were talking about, even saying, um, stating your desires, which for some people just feel so uncomfortable and vulnerable, maybe because they're like, well, why should I say it if it will never happen? Mm. Okay, it will never happen. But like, I'm sure people are listening to this being like, that's so scary or vulnerable yeah. or stupid even, but it's like, it's, if we could change that narrative or that the way that we, it's such a mind shift, but like just changing from like fear to exploring. Yeah. It makes life so much more fun. It, it does. It does that, that, that play, it really does increase the quality of our life. I, I, when I'm trying to explain this exact thing that I, I kind of feel you trying to explain to a kind of imaginary client here, when I'm doing that same work with a client of, um, describing why it's why their needs and their feelings are important for us to get in touch with and are worthy of our attention, even if they can't be completely gratified as they want. An analogy I use a lot is that needful sort of raw self is often a more childlike version of ourselves. 
So similar to a child, it can be really healing and it could be part of the growing up process to have those needs heard and met with, you're right, that would be a really cool thing. And then not gratified, right? right? right. Like I, I have a family friend um, who has a very cute three-year-old. And when he was turning three, I asked him what he wanted for, for his third birthday. And he said, I want a bouncy ball that touches the ceiling. Right. And I was like, that would be really cool. Right. <laughs> I'm right. not going to totally. get him one. Totally. Right. Yeah. Um, first of all, his parents would kill me, but, <laughs> but also, um, I, I think the idea is more appealing than the reality. Right. Um, and being able to do that for ourselves and say, you're right. That would be really cool if I had a, a diamond necklace. Right. The, the idea of it is more fun than the reality. I don't feel like spending that money. Right. But, but the fact that you have that idea, like, cool. Right. Right. I will say like, I could say a lot of things on this, but like I tell, we, we bought a house here in Woodmere and like, I, I know for like so many years, I was like, we'll never buy a house. We'll never buy a house. We'll never buy a house. Mm-hmm. And then I heard like the concept of like vision boards and I was like, that's it. I'm doing a vision board. And it was really very freeing to let myself dream. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and Bar Hashem, we did actually buy a house in um in Woodmere a few years ago and and now I keep saying to my husband this is very much like the surrendered wife like just stating your needs but I keep saying like I would love to go to Italy and he's like mm-hmm. he's not taking me to Italy it's not working but like uh-huh. I still don't feel like a sense of rejection like I just feel like it's fun to dream about going to Italy and that's mm-hmm. uh, like I said before like I wouldn't have been able to do this like five years ago um anyways okay so I actually have to wrap up this interview because my boys are upstairs but could you just tell the listeners where they could find you sure Um, my, the best mode of contact for me is by email. It's, uh, Rachel R. Buxbaum. That's at gmail.com. If you have any questions or want to know anything more about the work that I do, you can feel free to reach out. Okay, great. So I'll put all that in the show notes and I'll put the book that you recommended also. And yeah, people could reach out. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you all so much for being here on my podcast, Get Into It with Gila. If you'd like to learn more about what I do and what intuitive eating is, please visit my website at www.gilaglassberg.com or follow me on Instagram at Gila Glassberg. Thank you so much. Have a great day.